All right, guys, it's time for the next level guy show. A men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's special guests are Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. DA Special Agents Javier Pena and Steve Murphy were assigned as the lead investigators targeting Escobar and his Medellin cartel organization. These two American heroes provide a first-hand lesson in history as they discuss their efforts bringing down the world's first narco-terrorist, the challenges they faced in oftentimes hostile and life-threatening environments, and the innovative strategies they employed to successfully end the reign of the terror of the world's most wanted criminal. And in this first outing, we look at how the Netflix series Narcos matched the real investigation, we discuss their story, training, how they found Colombia, the role of the local population, their thoughts on Escobar, and so much more. Thank you guys so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Okay. I've been a big fan of both of you now for years. But unfortunately, a lot of people only know you through Narcos. You know, Not a lot of people know the actual events. And you brought out a fantastic new book, which you you know you gave me the privilege of a free copy um, to sort of read before before the interview. But for people who don't know you, I mean, you're considered heroes, but you see yourself as just law enforcement, which I think is underselling what you did. Could you just give a quick overview of who you are and why you're sort of legends in law enforcement? Hi, I'm Steve Murphy. I'm a retired special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration in the United States. I spent 26 years as an agent, but I was a police officer for almost 38 years here in the U.S. We um, started out in the local community as a uniformed police officer, then went to the railroad police, and then became an agent with DEA. Uh, throughout my career, I was stationed in Miami, Florida, then Bogota, Colombia, from there to Greensboro, North Carolina, then Atlanta, Georgia, to Washington, D.C., back to Atlanta, and then I finished up my career in Washington. I retired from DEA in 2013, and um, shortly after that, started a uh, very, very small consulting business in conjunction with my partner, Javier Pena, in which we taught classes uh, for a uh, U.S. military special operators. I probably shouldn't say more than that. <laughs> uh, worked on some other contracts, but uh, along came Narcos, and uh, so now we travel around the world telling the true story about Pablo Escobar. Uh, you know, we, we try to invoke humor into it. It's not a lecture. It's, we do tell a story, but uh, we try to make it as interesting as we can. We have videos. Uh, we have a ton of photographs. Um, just try to have a good time with the audience. And, and we even have a question and answer session at the end of the, of the presentation so the audience can ask us questions about uh, the investigation, about the making of narcos. We even talk about our personal lives to a certain degree. So it's uh, last thing I ever thought I'd be doing in retirement. I got to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> okay, this is uh, Javier Pena, and uh, 
I was with the Drug Enforcement Administration as a special agent for uh, 30 years. And I also, like Steve, uh, started off with the local uh, uh, law enforcement department, which was the sheriff's office in Laredo, Texas. A lot of people don't know where Laredo is. It sits right on the border of, uh, of Mexico. The uh, border town is called Nuevo Laredo, Mexico. The U.S. side is Laredo, Texas. Anyway, I did uh, seven years with the sheriff's office. Then I wanted to, uh, you know, just see what uh, federal law enforcement was all about. So I applied with the DEA, got accepted. And uh, like I said, after uh, 30 years, then I retired. But my career in DEA was, uh, I did about, uh, I started off in Austin, Texas, which is the capital of Austin. Did four years there. Then went uh, to Columbia. And I did, uh, I was stationed there for six years in uh, Bogota. Did a lot of work in Medellin, Colombia. After Medellin, I get promoted as a group supervisor for San Juan, Puerto Rico. Then I go to our uh, DEA headquarters, where uh, what we call, we did our, uh, did our headquarters time. Then got promoted again as the number two guy, went back to Colombia and uh, did uh, two years there. And after Colombia, uh, went uh, again as the boss of San Antonio, Texas, and got promoted to the special agent in charge, which is our highest position to San Francisco, California. Then after San Francisco, I went to uh, Puerto Rico, was also the agent in charge. Then after uh, Puerto Rico, Houston, Texas, again as the agent in charge until I retired. And uh, like I said, I was not expecting, but all of a sudden I had been on the job for 30 years. It's amazing when you sort of like listen to that history and that wealth of experience. But I mean, when you read the book, you, it kind of blows you away about the differences between how the Narcos series sort of publicized the history and how it actually happened. I mean, when they're talking about Javier moving melons and killed a snake with one and Steve being a railway cop and things like that. I love the, the, how it fleshed out your histories. Could you go into a little bit about your backgrounds? Because... Did you always want to be cops? Did you always want to go into law enforcement? Um, this is Steve. You know, ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a police officer. Um, not sure why. Uh, my father was a, a minister. My mom was a bookkeeper in a local bank. Um, so we didn't have a lot. But, um, you know, for, I had my first, uh, <laughs> I guess, run-in with the police when I was very young, about 10 years old. Uh, with some buddies out camping and, you know, it was summertime and we were spending the night in somebody's backyard. And of course, when all the adults go to sleep, we'd take our bikes out and we'd go exploring and, um, you know, getting in trouble and doing things we probably shouldn't be doing. And, and actually we didn't have any money. So we were going to break into one of the guy's houses, one of the guys that was sleeping out with us, which was a really stupid idea because his mom probably would have shot us if we'd gotten into the house. <laughs> but, um, you know, I guess we really botched things up because uh, in no time, two police officers had shown up and were shining bright lights on us and and uh, just scared us to death. And they said, well, boys, you know, we've got two options here. One, we can take you to jail tonight. And you'll spend the rest of your lives in prison or we can take you home to your parents. And you know what? We all looked at each other and said, take us to jail because <laughs> we knew what was going to happen when we got home. <laughs> of course, they laughed and, and they took us home anyway. Uh, and sure enough, that's what happened. But uh, I guess that left, I, I never really thought about that until we were writing the book. I guess that left a lasting impression on me that, you know, these guys um, just came across very professionally and, and 
you know, they used common sense. They knew that, you know, we weren't burglars. They knew we were just kids out being mischievous. Um, and so I, I just kind of pursued that my whole life, not realizing that someday I would become a police officer. Had no idea I'd ever become a DEA agent uh, or a federal agent for that matter. But it's just kind of the way things work out in your life. You know, fate works out and, and doors open for you and, and DEA opened for me and it turned out to be a lot of fun. Yes, for me, this is uh, Javier. Yep, I started off, uh, I said, at the sheriff's office in Laredo, Texas. But before that, I grew up in a little place called Hebronville, Texas, population 5,000, which is located 50 miles out of uh, Laredo. Anyway, my dad was a rancher. He worked uh, a lot at the ranch. In the summer, I picked watermelons. And if you've ever <laughs> picked watermelons, that's a hard job. They're about 30, 40 pounds in the in that hot sun, you got rattlesnakes. To this day, I will never eat a watermelon, and I hate rattlesnakes. Anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, went to college, and there was an internship position open. I was a freshman, and it was at Texas Department of Corrections, which is in Huntsville, Texas. That's where the all the prison system for the state is. So anyway, I learned uh, a lot working uh, there for three months. And a buddy of mine, a friend of mine, calls and says, hey, there's a sheriff in Laredo who's looking for new guys. I know him. You want to apply? So I applied. And you know what? I got selected. I had my grandparents. I lived with my grandma. I had the best of both worlds. I was working the night shift at the sheriff's office, going to school during the day, got my degree. And I'd been there working for about seven years until I saw an announcement that uh, the federal uh, DEA was hiring. So I applied, and with me, I did not know what DA was. I had to ask somebody, but they were paying a lot more than at the sheriff's office. So I came on, and then all of a sudden, you know, I get selected to Austin, Texas. And Austin at that time was the music industry of the world. All the bands, remember George Strait was starting off. It was just the, the music industry in Austin was starting off, so I really enjoyed it. And then uh, that's what led me, you know, work there. And then I just wanted to see what the real uh, narcs, the the guys who were uh, running the, the empires was all about. That's why I applied for uh, to go to Columbia. It's amazing when you sort of read the book of how, you know, you assume that like something like this would have been your calling and you would have all, you'd have been training for this for years and you'd have been assigned this sort of mission to go and take out one of the world's most dangerous men. But it's amazing how it kind of just sort of flows from step to step by step. But can you go into a little bit about how the DEA is set up and the training and that sort of thing? Is it just like any other kind of law enforcement? Because it's got a singular mission of eliminating, um, you know, the drugs. But how... What was the appeal of the DEA? Was it just the, the scope of its mission or the fact that you could travel abroad and this sort of thing compared to like the FBI and that? Well, for me, um, you know, I've been watching Miami Vice on TV and, and man, I thought that's really cool because, you know, if it's on TV, it must be true, right? <laughs> Which is a joke. <laughs> but uh, it just, when I became a city police officer, I was still a rookie and a, and a partner not a partner, but a friend, a fellow police officer, and I, he was a rookie also. We had a uh, another friend who worked in a gas station who told us, hey, there's this kid running around town selling pound quantities of weed. Well, in 1976, you know, in southern West Virginia, that's where I was living at the time, that was a lot of dope. So we set it up, and the guy, you know, he came to the gas station, and sure enough, he brought a pound of weed, and, and we stepped out of the back room, and 
it wasn't we pounced out with our guns or anything. We just stepped out and said, hey, how you doing? And we took the pound. We tested it. And we tested positive. We said, you're under arrest. Well, it turns out the kid was 17 years old. So, you know, we took him to the police station and, and uh, his father showed up. And after we talked to his dad for a while, we realized he was the punishment was going to be worse at home than it would ever be in a jail. So, uh, you know, we talked to the prosecutor and dismissed the charges. We never charged the kid with it. Um, that just, you know, that was in 1976, just a, a few months ago, I got an email from this guy. I didn't remember his name, but, um, he was, uh, it wasn't an email. It was a message on Facebook and he was saying, Hey, I'm the kid that you cut a break when I was 17 years old. You know, now I'm a professional businessman. You know, I just wanted to say thank you, uh, for giving a, a dumb kid a, a break at that time. And, and we've kind of become friends now. But the excitement of, of doing that, you know, reaching out and surprising somebody like that when they had no idea what was going on and they thought the local police were stupid. You know, we had no idea that drugs were going on in our area. Uh, it was always very intriguing. And, you know, then as a, a uniformed police officer and then later as a railroad policeman, um, the, the narcotic side of things just seemed like it presented a challenge that was, you know, could be very exciting whether you're working undercover, you're doing surveillance, or, you know, running informants, whatever it might be. And then as a railroad policeman, one of my uh, fellow agents there was a former Virginia state trooper who worked on a DEA task force. And he used to tell me stories about the cases he worked and how they would develop into national cases. And then some of them would even go international. And I thought, you know, that just sounds like what I'd really, really like to do. So that's what kind of hooked me into DEA. I honestly didn't know what DEA was. Uh, I applied. It took two years to get accepted. And then when you go to the academy, um, it was it was like I'd gone through the West Virginia State Police Academy. It was similar to that, except that we were living there uh, full time for I think when I went through it was 13 weeks. Um, it was rather rigorous. You know, it was PT every day. You were on the firearms range almost every day. Uh, even if you weren't doing PT through a scheduled class, you were out running and, you know, they like to go on five to 10 mile runs and keep you in shape. And, Oh, um, it's just the sound of that is scary. You know, it's, you know, when you're younger, it's a lot easier, <laughs> but uh, you know, they had, they had pretty strict rules. Uh, it was nice living quarters, no complaints there. Um, but you know, if, if you didn't meet the standards on firearms, you get fired. If you couldn't pass, meet the standards for physical training, you got fired. And if you, I think if you failed two academic tests, they let you go. So their standards were pretty high, you know, and, and you were expected to meet them, but rightfully so. So, you know, when I started the class, I think there were 50 of us that started our class and we graduated 42, I believe it was, because they were serious. If you couldn't meet the standards, they let you go, even though they had invested money in your background investigation and everything. You know, they, I mean, it sounds kind of self-serving and I don't mean it to be, but they wanted the best that they could get. Um, and you figure back then, I think if, if they were going to select 50 people for a new DEA class, I want to say there were something like 5,000 applicants for those 50 positions. So, you know, it was, it was very competitive, but, um, it turned out to be the best agency I could have ever selected. I, you know, there's an old saying that says, if you find a job you like, you'll never work a day in your life. Javier and I, we found that job working for DEA. This is uh, Javier, and I also I remember going through the uh, DEA Academy, and I had been through our Sheriff's Office Academy, which is a local law enforcement. That was only about eight weeks. It's, it was some training, some uh, some physical training, but it was light. Uh, the tests were easy. It wasn't 
complex, where I got to DA the training academy while I was I in for a surprise. There's a lot of stress involved. Like Steve mentioned, there's two tests. If you fail that, if you didn't meet the physical requirements of running, keeping up, yeah, we're running four or five, uh, I think, uh, miles a day. I went in at about 200 pounds, and I came out of the academy at 180. So that's uh, should do that again <laughs> right now. I need that. Uh, so it was a lot of vigorous, the stressful, and knowing that you can be fired. Uh, so it wasn't uh, anything easy for me because I wasn't used to it. So, and you know what, I it, I hadn't realized when uh, when I came on. Like you said, I did not know what DEA was until I, I got hired on. And the only reason I got uh, I applied was uh, DEA was paying. I think it was seventeen thousand dollars a year at the time. At the sheriff's office I was making like nine or ten thousand. This is back in the late seventies. Uh, you know, got hired in eighty four. But anyway, so uh, and I, you know what, I, I started liking it because it was a, it wasn't going after the user or you know the guy smoking pot. It was going after the echelon, the highest person on the organization and the practicals we used to practice with they would have real uh, real actors acting as crooks so you'd have to follow them you'd have to work the case and the cases are are, are hard to work up so it's a different style of uh surveillances you know electronic intercepts uh, some undercover involved, and uh, you're always trying to lead up to the highest person in the organization. So to me, that was like, wow, this ain't just a, you know, we're going to, hey, this guy just sold me an ounce, we're going to arrest him. It wasn't nothing like that. It was just a, the complex organization of a complex criminal organization. So you learned all the different laws in all the different theories, and again, you had to pass everything from the physical to the to the aptitude test, to the firing range. So uh, I started liking uh, the job. And, uh, you know, and that's what when I came on in Austin, Texas, I mean, I did a lot of street work, did a lot of undercover surveillances. You're learning how to build the case. And this is what, you know, what, what I liked about uh, being a DEA agent. I mean, it's quite remarkable when you read the book about the level of quantity of drugs that was involved but it only became kind of like a a massive sort of national wide issue sort of in the 70s and 80s could you go into a little bit about like why why do you think escobar was so successful in the initial period and what kind of quantity are we talking here because you know there's times you're mentioning three to four hundred keys and it's really hard to visualize that you know how much would a key roughly have cost back then and it's it's hard to fathom the amount of money that they could have possibly been making back then. Yeah, well, uh, you know, and I'll go first. I I I, I get to Colombia in '88, so I see the drug distribution at that at that level. I remember one of the first cases was on a commercial airline. No, I'll never forget. We got a call. Uh, Javier, I think it was one, you know one of the cops called up and says, "You may want to come to the Bogota El Dorado Airport." All right. And it was a commercial airline, well-known airline. I'm not going to mention the airline. But anyway, not even they didn't even try to hide it. It was just in the belly of a plane. 800 kilos of cocaine. I, that was like one of the first cases. And it was just in boxes in the cargo area. You open the box, they didn't camouflage it with 
fruit stuff or try to, like I said, sometimes they put vegetables or fruit, whatever, machinery. It was just in boxes. That was my first experience uh, watching. Yeah, yeah. This is, like I said, I remember 1988 in route to Miami. It was no big deal back at the time. So that was my experience with uh, cocaine. Then all of a sudden, again, uh, we start getting into Pablo Escobar and we had never, none, nobody realized who Pablo Escobar was. No one really uh, was targeting him. You know, the, the targeting came after the violence, after every time there was a seizure, for example, in Miami, uh, it came back to Pablo Escobar. So it, it was in, you know, in, in the mid-80s, in the... Uh, if you've seen the movie Scarface, and I always ask people, and 90% of the people have seen Scarface, uh, that was pretty accurate description of what was going on in Miami, the violence and the cocaine. You mentioned the price of the kilo of cocaine. That was going for about $80,000 uh, in, in Miami during the mid-80s. And there's a lot of businesses, a lot of properties that were bought with uh, cocaine uh, money during this time. So in the, to make it in the jungles of Colombia was about $5,000. So that's your initial investment of producing it, transporting it. Once you got to Miami, one kilo, $80,000 in Europe. If you were to send the load into Europe at this time, that kilo was going for about a hundred thousand dollars of, uh, you know, for one kilo of cocaine. Then, if you go into the, you know, when you cut up that kilo, you could cut it up, you know, four or five times. It just depends. But anyway, your initial investment was going to be about, you know, about seventy thousand to eighty thousand for one kilo of cocaine. And uh, you mentioned uh, this is why Pablo Escobar cornered the market. He was responsible for 80% of the cocaine that was reaching the world. And this is during the mid-80s. So it wasn't millions, it was billions, B, billions coming back to Pablo Escobar in Medellin, Colombia. It's terrifying, like that level of quantity. I mean, Steve, you you sort of got interactions with that through and based in Miami. Was the Narcos portrayal of your time there with Kevin and that sort of thing? Did that really kind of showcase the true level of violence and depredation that was coming in from the smuggled drugs at the time? You know, the the uh, the violence that was going on in South Florida in the mid to late nineteen eighties was worse than what you saw on the show, um, Kevin. You know, they show in the series, uh, my partner, his name is Kevin, and they kind of show him as a fat, dumpy guy, and he ends up getting killed. Well, my real partner there was, his name was Kevin, but he was a former U.S. Marine. He was in great shape. Um, he didn't get killed, but he did get shot twice in a deal we had go bad in Hialeah, which is one of the suburbs of Miami there. Um, the it, it seemed like, it seemed like what I had learned as, as you know, we were working the bigger cases is the bigger the dealer, the less violence there was. I know that sounds kind of strange because there's a, a huge amount of violence uh, associated with all these narcotics organizations. But when you're going to arrest people, the, it seemed like the street dealers, if you were going after them, which we rarely did, but when I was a uniformed police officer, they would always fight. 
you know, they, they might have weapons on them. You had to be very careful, but you're picking up people that are dropping off 500 kilos of Coke and they just raise their hands and surrender to you. Um, I don't know. It just seemed like the bigger the dealer, the less potential for violence there was, at least when it came to being arrested. Maybe that's because they knew they would have the best attorneys or else they would just post whatever big bond was placed on them. And then they just never come back to the United States. So uh, that was a, a little bit eye opening. But to be honest with you, that made the job extremely exciting. Um, I know a lot of people think I'm crazy when I say that. And of course, it was terrible that my partner got shot and the informant was actually killed during that deal. But uh, it was just, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me in my brain. I don't know. But it, it, when I was a younger man, I thought that was just so exciting and, and just loved doing the job. And I just couldn't imagine doing anything else. I mean, it's. I think we all kind of lust for our sort of adventure and excitement, but maybe maybe not getting shot at. But yeah. I mean, that's the the thing about it is people don't see that side of it when they they want to go take drugs and you know this. I mean, I, I don't use drugs, but you get you know there's a scene in Narcos where you beat up the guy in the airport bathroom because he's snorting cocaine and stuff like that. A lot of times they don't people who use don't see the negative effects of drugs. So when you were then both sent on the mission to sort of tackle that from its main source in Colombia. How did you find the transition from your sort of smaller American cities going into what must have been a completely different world in Colombia where, you know, like you were treated as gringos, you were stood out. You yeah. know, was the level of fight back from the Colombian people as bad as the narco scenes made out? Because you talk in the book about how, you know, welcoming them they were. Why, you know, was it just Hollywood-sized, shall we say, the yeah. narco series of how you t you found it? Yeah, this is how we are, and, and, and I'll go first. For for me, that's a good uh, point you brought up. I mean, I, I was, like I said, I worked in Austin, Texas, where it was low-level trafficker were making ounce buys. I remember methamphetamine was was being manufactured in Austin. Uh, we called it mom-and-pa-type labs, and it was easy to make because there wasn't uh, the precursor chemicals at this point were not controlled. So we had a lot of people that were making uh, 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 methamphetamine in hotel bathrooms and kitchens, you know, uh, trader parks, you know, you name it. So I was I was watching the lower level uh, of traffic. Once in a while, we'd get a load of marijuana, four or five hundred pounds, and coming in from Mexico. So anyway, so. You know, once I, I, I get to uh, Bogota, and I've never been to Colombia before. I had to look it up on the map where it was located. So uh, once I get there, I, wow, and Bogota is a beautiful city. I think population at that time was like four or five million. It's a big uh, city. And uh, I, I'll always remember that the general theory there was, well, you can't trust your counterparts, the cops. You know, they're all dirty, corrupt. And you know what? That was the biggest uh, misconception that there was, that we could not trust the Colombian police. As soon as we started working, they were, you know what? It, what we noticed, it's if you were out there really trying, really trying to help them, you know what? They, they were some of the nicest, most professional uh, people in the world. All of a sudden, we started, you know, developing that, that friendship with us. 
and, and vice versa. And they used to tell us, he says, guys, you know, the reason sometimes we didn't get along with uh, DEA, because, man, we give them information, we never get anything back. So we started, what? You know, all of a sudden sharing information with them. Hey, this Miami, that info you gave us led to a seizure. There's some more phone numbers here. There's some people, uh, a case, and all of a sudden, they we started just cooperating with each other. We develop uh, friendships, you know, to this date uh, that we have. So it was very, very different. And there wasn't a lot of consumption in Colombia at this time. I'm not sure now. I'm sure there is some. But, you know, uh, it, it was just the traffickers operating at the highest levels. Uh, they were very organized and they were very violent. So it's something that we had to learn right away how, how to deal with these people. What about yourself, Steve? How did you find that sort of initial transition to going, you know, coming from an American city, very, you know, I think you're sort of English, Irish heritage, coming into that society? I mean, did you find that you were almost sort of reverse racism even so like you know because you, you stood out kind of thing or did you find uh, coming welcoming and into the Colombian initially well uh, my wife and I when we got there obviously we were very nervous we'd been living in South Florida which has a huge Hispanic population you know Colombians Cubans Haitians uh, just it was a very eclectic area to live in and so we had already kind of become accustomed to that but uh, when you go into Colombia, you know, and, and their native language is Spanish, well, DEA sent me to language school. And in language school, they, they taught me to speak proper Spanish. Well, I don't even speak proper English, you know. <laughs> so Dear do I, I. And I get down there and, 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 you know, you're very hesitant. You don't want to embarrass yourself, but you, you use the Spanish. You know, I spoke to them the way I was taught and they understood every word I said. But then they would answer me back in colloquial sayings and different dialects, you know. And, uh, and of course, they, they spoke at what was normal speed for them, and I wasn't used to the, the rapid Spanish. So I had a little bit of a hard time keeping up. But um, what my wife and I found, and this amazed both of us, was that Colombia Colombians are some of the most accepting people in the world. They're, they're open, the hardworking, you know, uh, taxpaying citizens down there that just trying to live honest lives and, and eke out a living were just fantastic people. If you go in there with an open attitude, you use the Spanish that you know. And, and as an example, my wife, she had no Spanish uh, language training. She knew some words, uh, you know, she, she'd hear me talking to Spanish and we had little three by five index cards taped to everything in our house, you know, so we could learn vocabulary about, you know, what, what do you call a refrigerator, a fork, a knife, a chair, everything. And, you know, she knew some, some very basic sayings. Well, she would go shopping by herself and then she'd bring something home and, and either she decided she didn't like it or it didn't fit. So she'd take it back and she would negotiate with these people. And I, I asked her, I said, how in the world do you do that? You can't even speak Spanish. And she said, you know what? I go in and I use the Spanish that I know. Uh, I go with a smile on my face. You know, you accept their culture. You're willing to laugh at yourself when you make a mistake. And they bend over backwards for you to, to help you along. But what we also saw is if you go in with an attitude like, you know, why is it I'm in Colombia and you don't all speak Spanish, uh, English here? Well, they, they don't have a problem telling you real quick where the airport is and you get the hell out. You know, if you don't like their culture, get out. And that was one of the neat things about working with the cops 
is uh, Javier and I went in with the attitude that we're going to live like these guys do. We're going to sleep in the same quarters, eat the same food, you know, drink the same alcohol or, or whatever beverages they had and be willing to uh, make sacrifices like they were making. And that was the key. And this is not something I developed. This is something Javier developed before I ever got there. And because of the, the trust and respect that he had earned from the Colombian National Police, they accepted me. You know, I still had to earn the respect, but at least they accepted me initially because I was Javier's partner. Um, and that's that's how we made it work down there. It was uh, it was a great surprise to go down and see that the Colombian people were so nice. Uh, and just like Javier told you, I was the same way. I expected all the police officers to be corrupt. And to my knowledge, uh, I, I can think of maybe four police officers that, uh, you know, we dealt with over the years that ended up being corrupt. And three of them were at such a low level, it, it really had no impact. It didn't have any uh, negative impact on us whatsoever. So could you go into a little bit about like what a typical day would have been like back then? I mean, because this is before they would have used like cell phones, you know, they would just been sort of coming out now. But how did you guys kind of, like the Narcos series shows it being like explosions and massive events and firefights every day kind of thing. Well, what was it like trying to source this guy? What kind of tactics were you using in the initial kind of way to counteract? Because it must have been like one of those dogs, you know, where you get the three-headed dogs where you cut one head off when you make a bust, <laughs> only for another head to sprout somewhere else. How? What kind of things were you doing on a day-to-day basis to take down Escobar and his sicarios? Well, you know what? And uh, I don't know who came up with the concept of us going to Medellin. I mean, it was an invitation from the government of Colombia at the highest level. I think they contacted our ambassador that they said, hey, uh, can we get some help? And since Steve and I had been working with these people, with a specialized group of guys that were from Bogota, so we knew them. And we were assigned the Pablo Escobar case from the very beginning, you know, the first search, 1988, then his surrender in 1992. And then after the escape is when it really uh, got uh, got interesting. Right after the escape, uh, they, they asked for us, you know, Stephen uh, and Javier to go to live with in uh, Medellin. And we were there the, the next day after Pablo Escobar escaped. So I remember going into the prison, Steve and I, and wow, we were in for a rude awakening. It wasn't a prison. It was a country club type setting. Then uh, all of a sudden, like I said, we formed uh, the, the, the famous search block, the Bloque de Busqueda, they used to call it. So we had the specialized groups, group of guys from Bogota, the police, and Steve and I, and uh, we lived in the same <laughs> same barracks. We had one room. We shared it with other guys. In our, in our typical day, basically, was you know, that we were looking for that intelligence, that information, and we were getting a lot from it from our Miami offices. DEA created a concept of going after anybody associated with Pablo Escobar in the United States and in Europe. We were getting a lot of information and sharing it. The cops would tell us information to go after someone in the United States, informants, uh, the electronic uh, surveillances uh, that that we had. And, 
you know, once in a while we'd go out on search warrants with the police, you know, we'd fly out in the choppers, you know, we'd hit a finca, a ranch, you know, where thought Escobar was hiding. Uh, so it, it, it was a lot of, like I said, exchange uh, of information. There were a couple of times where it got a little risky. For example, the car bombs, you know, you would leave the base and, you know, Escobar was placing them all over the, you know, all over the city in Medellin, in Bogota. Uh, he had, our, our base was located in the middle of a neighborhood in Medellin. It was a, a poor type of neighborhood. Uh, so there was a lot of people that were, you know, working for Escobar. Once they see a convoy leaving, you know, there'd be about, you know, four or five trucks with about 20 officers each. So they knew we were headed out somewhere. And at the beginning, you know, Escobar would be tipped off. He'd be warned by some of the police. Uh, for example, we had a couple of guys we did not know that were from Medellin. All of a sudden, Escobar got to their family, says, if your son doesn't let uh, let me know they're, where they're coming, I will kill everybody in the family. So the poor police officer had no choice. He had to, all right, hey, you know, he'd find a way to warn uh, Pablo Escobar. So, like I said, then we just started with uh, people that were not from uh, Medellin. But during the bloody war during the height of it, you know, the car bombs, the assassinations, the bounties on police officers, the bombs on buildings, I mean, that, that, that was tough. But by, you asked our concept was, and our concept was to go after the all of the organization. And I think we were able to accomplish that. If you looked, uh, you know, at the end, Pablo Escobar had one Sicario left, you know, where he had 500. Yeah, in in the beginning, but by Steve and I being there with the police, that was just it. It made a world of difference in that that information was being exchanged on a timely basis. And then I think what also topped it off was we started offering a reward. You know, got up to about five million dollars for Escobar's location. So they would call and they only wanted to talk to the Gringos. That was Steve and I. Why? Because they knew <laughs> we were going to pay. So we had a lot of that uh, going on. So the, the, the concept was great. Uh, but then again, the, the violence and the friends we lost, that was, and the innocent people that were killed was just something we had never seen before. And Steve, do you have uh, anything to add to that? Uh, no, he covered it pretty well. It was um, it, it was just a nice surprise that we were allowed to do that. And and like Javier said, a lot of people think that you know why are these ugly Americans inserting themselves into an international investigation? Well, in the United States, there's a law that covers that where you know if, if uh, a criminal organization is having a direct negative impact on the United States, we do have the authority to go for, you know to fight, to pursue that person or that organization. Well, in this case, the Colombians, they invited us in. We just didn't show up one day and say, hey, I'm Steve. This is Javier. We're here to help you with your case. <laughs> you know, that's just not the way it works. So uh, it, it was a great working relationship. Um, but we also don't ever want anybody to take any of the credit away from the Colombian National Police simply because two gringos are there. You know, they knew what they were doing. They were great investigators. You know, we faced a lot of dangers during our time there, but they faced dangers, multiple dangers on a daily basis there. And you know what? When our time was up, when our tours of duty were over, we got to come back to the United States. They lived there. 
they, you know, that's their home. So they were going to have to deal with whatever came along. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy. So how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. Now, Escobar had sort of, he'd always give back to the, the poor and he'd established, you know, like housing and help set up the running water and all these things. So he was almost sort of seen as a Robin Hood to a lot of these kind of like local populations. So how do you start winning like, it's a horrible phrase to use, the hearts and minds of the local people? You know, how did you start getting into them and kind of explaining to them what he was doing was wrong? Was it that he started killing like politicians and blowing up the plane and things like that that turned the tide, do you think? Or how do you start building the trust and kind of putting the wedge between him? and Because, you know, this is where he was getting Sicarios from. They were hiding in him and helping him. But, you know, I'm sure the show made it look like you were fighting the local people as much as the Sicarios, which is not true, but... What was the reality like? The 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 Sicarios at the beginning, and you gotta like say if if you lived in the poorest areas of Medellin, there wasn't much housing. But if Escobar came in and offered you and gave you money, helped your family, your your mom, and I mean this was told to me by one of the Sicarios, and I'll never forget. He says, you know what? I love Pablo Escobar. I will die for him and I will kill for him. He took me out of my poverty. My mom has a roof over her head. She's got a refrigerator. She's got food. She's got a stove. And he says, he told me my allegiance is to Pablo Escobar. He said, I'm 15 years old. And this is during the time of the bounties on police officers. And he admitted to me he had already killed 10 police officers under the orders of Pablo Escobar at $100 a head. I mean, that is pathetic. And uh, he was 15 years old, and he said, you know what, by 22, 23 years old, I will be dead. I will be killed by somebody else, by another trafficker, another sicario. So I owe my life to Pablo Escobar. And Pablo Escobar had a, uh, had a, when we used to intercept him, he had a message that he would say, there's a meeting at La Terraza tonight. La Terraza. Nobody knew what La Terraza was. We would, we would hear it, the terrace in, in English. And you know what I found out about five years ago, what the terrace was? That terrace was at an old Catholic church in the poorest neighborhood in Medellin, and it had a terrace around it. Pablo Escobar used to go himself. And they'd be 100, 200 of these young thugs, you know, 13, 14, 15, all waiting for the boss. And Pablo used to arrive there, man, he was like the king. They, and, you know, he'd hug all the sicarios, right? Hey, so many of you are going to work, you know, look for this guy, come to the, you know, tomorrow. So he had that 
going for him. That uh, and you know Escobar had that charisma. You gotta admit it. And then uh, you know you talked about that Robin Hood, and uh, yep, he did build homes for the poor, gave money to the church, hospitals, soccer fields. But in the end. He wanted loyalty. He expected loyalty. And if he told us, Sicario, hey, wipe out that innocent family of uh, five, kill everybody, the mom, the dad, the grandmother, the Sicario would not think twice about it. So we, and Steve and I, we do presentations, and we've mentioned it on the real history of Pablo Escobar. And we always get that, that Robin Hood, and we dispel that myth. Robin Hood didn't put a bomb on a commercial airline. Robin Hood didn't kill 10 to 15,000 innocent people. Didn't, Robin Hood didn't kill the next president of Colombia. So we dispel that myth. Pablo Escobar wanted sicarios, and he paid, uh, he paid them with, uh, with uh, he respected, you know, he paid them money and respected loyalty in the end. So, I mean, you guys have gone into some of the most dangerous situations, chasing people. You know, these guys who are taking life at such minimal amounts of payments, you know, and they were just looking to sort of better themselves and the violence that was being used and, you know, people were craving drugs and willing to use violence to get them and all these kind of scenarios and different cartels, etc. But how do you deal with overcoming that level of fear? How did, you know, did is it just from your training? Is it just from your reference points of your experience as police officers? What did you learn about kind of fear and what you're capable of doing during such a dangerous time with car bombs and assassinations? Because you guys just went out day after day till you achieved your mission. What did it teach you about fear and overcoming it at that point? Well, we did. We were we lived in Medellin for 18 months with the Columbia National Police. We were going out almost every single day on operations with them. And we'd love to tell you that we were never scared, that we're some kind of tough guys. <laughs> the truth is, we're not tough guys. <laughs> we're a couple of small town country boys is what we are. But, That's tough in my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for whatever reason, uh, you know, people ask us, do we get scared? Of course we got scared, you know, and you've got all these murderers out there that, you um, you know, they're just killing, like like Javier said, I mean, all, Javier, all Pablo had to do was point at somebody and they would be killed because there was that much loyalty from the Sicarios. But, um, you know, we it's not like it was in the show where it shows Javier and I run across the rooftops of, of Medellin, Colombia in these running gun battles. That didn't happen. We never did anything by ourselves. You know, we didn't act unilaterally. We were always with the Colombian National Police. And... Typically, we were with a very elite group of Colombian National Police officers. Uh, the name of their unit was DIJIN, D-I-J-I-N is how it's spelled, and it's, it's an acronym. I don't remember what it's about. But these are the guys that, you know, we lived with on a daily basis, worked with, ate, you know, dinner, went to the bars, all, everything. We did it all together with them. And if you think about this, for whatever reason, you know, Henry and I had the ability. I don't know that we still have this ability today. But back then we had the ability that when the when the shit hit the fan, you know, when things got hot, we got scared. But you have to be able to control that fear, because if you let fear take over, you're going to do something stupid and you're going to get yourself killed. And just as an example, if somebody starts shooting at you, your natural instinct is to run away. Well, our natural instinct was to find something to hide behind, you know, to to protect yourself. And that's what you should do, because if you're running away, you're probably going to be in the open. Um, now, if you if you're exchanging shots, you know we we both did have some uh, additional tactical training, uh, 
you know, there's a, a very basic concept called shoot and move. You don't keep shooting from the same location because they'll, they'll hone in, you know, they'll zero in on that location. But, uh, you know, we just, quite honestly, we just thank the good Lord that we survived down there. Um, people say, well, you know, how did you survive? Well, because of the trust and respect that we had developed with the Dehean guys, the Columbia National Police Officers, you know, we knew that when it hit the fan, they would run off and leave us there. But because of that mutual trust and respect, when it hit the fan, they knew we wouldn't run off and leave them either. We would stay with them and fight. So, you know, that's the only explanations we've ever come up with as to how we survived down there. Again, nothing special about us. Uh, you know, we're not tough guys. We're not Superman. We're just a couple of professional law enforcement officers. So what do you think the success has been like? Because you both seem to have such a great way of connecting with people and building the relationships, you know, if it's with a confidential informant to like the local police guys that are there to like, you know, sort of integrate it well into the Colombian society and stuff like that. What, what have you learned about this? Cause I mean, especially just now with things like the riots and some people's attitudes to law enforcement and stuff like that. Do you know, I just think it's really bad that people are sort of tarnishing all police with the you know with a bad brush. Where there's a lot of great policemen, but what has it taught you about the relationships and building trust with the local communities and things like that? You, you know what? Uh, you know respect. I learned right away when I worked at the the prison system. I remember an inmate. You know, I was new. I was scared. I think one of them took me under his wing and. He, uh, I always remember, you know, he said, sir, he says, you're new here. You just got to remember they're criminals, but they're also human beings. They're human exactly. beings. Treat them with respect. And I always learned uh, that uh, from the beginning. Yeah, we're, we're going through some problems right now. And uh, it, it's it's been uh, it's been bad. But we've all i think steve and i i mean it was when we worked with in, in columbia with with the police with the people it's we always we we were never that ugly american we we always like you said it's uh it's a two-way street uh and uh, i think steve mentioned it, there were some of the nicest people in the world where we were there and in, in, in law enforcement you know what it to me, I've always had that, uh, you know, that common sense, man. You know what? Sometimes, you know, I remember uh, uh, when you would cuff someone, sir, it's hurting. You know what? Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, let me take it off. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Loosen up. The, what's wrong with that? You know, uh, and in the book, I mentioned it and I never got in trouble, never got caught. But I mentioned about a, a guy, you know, around Christmas time, I think he's had about $3,000 in his pocket and his family's looking at me. You know, it was drug money where I should have taken it. And uh, he just says, sir, man, my family, that's all we have. It's, I got three, it was like three kids looking at me, the wife. Uh, you know what? I let him have the money. He's going to jail. I mean, it's that human touch. Remember, and you got to have respect, but there's also that, uh, that human side of everybody that, uh, like I said, it's just, you gotta, uh, you know, you, you feel for them and, you know, uh, 
if something, like you said, the best example is, is the handcuffs. How many times? You know, I'm learning, too, how to put handcuffs. But, sir, this is hurting. You know, I'm sorry. Let me take it out. And, you you know, you loosen them up. I mean, uh, but I, I, I just say there's uh, we got to get better at this. we got to learn. And uh, But, you know, just going back to Colombia, it, it was just, uh, you know, that, that human side of the police that we saw that we never expected the human side of the innocent person who who's getting killed out there. You know, I always question, you know, why the innocent people, why did Pablo Escobar have to kill all these innocent people with the car bombs, with the assassinations? They didn't have anything to do with this. But anyway, uh, I'll, I'll stop at that. Because, <laughs> I mean, that was the the thing that really comes across even just from the, the series, but the book really highlights the... Uh, the level of grief and despair that and the, the impact that he had on so many lives and so many killing so many families and stuff like that. I mean, it, the estimate was it Popeye or second, it was something like 50,000 deaths that could be attributed to him. I mean, how do you start coming to terms with that? How do you change a society like that to help them not be dependent on drugs and stuff like that? Because other cartels were coming in. You know, how did you weigh? Was the mission just to eliminate Escobar, or was it to help change the infrastructure to kind of move them away from the that dependency on those kind of incomes? Well, um, I'm just going to be real honest with the answer here. Working with Columbia National Police, it was made plain to us uh, when we moved to Medellin that this was not about seizing drugs. This was not about seizing money. This is about capturing or killing Pablo Escobar. You know, that's what the, the purpose, the sole mission of the search block was there in Medellin for 18 months. Um, and the Columbia National Police were able to accomplish their mission. But, you know, the, the thing is, um, so you've got these drug dealers who employ violence at the drop of a hat. You know, it's uh, there's a machismo that goes along with that. And if there's a disrespect, you know, if they feel they've been disrespected, they whip out a weapon in a heartbeat, and kill innocent people. And that's not what Columbia, the, the regular Colombians are all about. You know, the, the drug traffickers are a small percentage of the people down there. And, and I'll give you an example of the response that, that we got from, uh, from a personal experience I had, my wife and I had, when we adopted our second daughter down there. Our second daughter is from Medellin. So, you know, we adopted her in May of 1994, and Pablo was killed in December 1993. So um, when we filled out the paperwork, and we'd already adopted our first daughter in Bogota back before Pablo was killed in October 93. So um, when they asked me where I worked, I told them I worked at the Department of Justice, which is true because DEA belongs to the U.S. Department of Justice. Well, when they sent the paperwork, you know, when I was reviewing the paperwork, it shows my occupation as a lawyer. I never told them that. They just assumed because I worked for the Department of Justice that I was an attorney. And and I just never said anything. So when we would go to Medellin, you know, the, we had to get permission from the ambassador to go up there to adopt our daughter. And he loved the fact that we were adopting Columbia babies, but, you know, he was also concerned about our safety. So we were only allowed to travel in the daylight. You know, by the time it got dark, we had to be on a plane back to Bogota. We weren't allowed to spend the night in Medellin. Uh, we had to have a massive security detail with us. And so, you know, I called one of the colonels at the Columbia National Police, and they loved the fact that my wife and I were adopting these little babies. 
And uh, so I had three carloads of plainclothes police officers. Now I told these guys, I said, you know, just be real low key, keep your weapons hidden. We're not expecting any trouble. I just don't want to alarm anybody. And they're like, okay, okay. And when, <laughs> when we would pull up in an office building, the front car and the rear car, the guys would pile out with their weapons out ready to engage anybody that got close to us. It was very funny. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was probably alarming to a lot of people, but that's the way it was. So finally, when everything said done, we had to make a couple trips to Medellin. And, and so we're sitting in the director's office and she said, okay, everything is finalized. This little girl now belongs to you. There's nothing that's legal. Nobody can take her away from you. I'd like to ask you a couple questions, you know, and you're thinking, oh, crap, that's never good. So we said, sure, what is it? She said, I just want to ask you a question. Who in the hell are you people? <laughs> and I said, well, you know who we are. You've, you've done a home study on us. You've got all our paperwork. And they said, yeah, you know what? We adopt to Americans all the time, and we've never seen anybody come in here with a security detail like you guys have. I mean, these guys have machine guns. And, and uh, so, you know, we're sitting there, and I said, well, I work for the Department of Justice. And she said, yeah, but there's got to be more to this story. And I said, well, you know, I thought about it a minute. I said, okay. I said, have you ever heard of DEA, La Dea is the way they say it in Spanish. And she said, I knew it. I knew it had to be something like that. And I looked at, her, at this director and I said, do we have a problem? And she said, no, no, no. Let me tell you what, you know, she said, first of all, very proud of what you've done to help our country. Uh, you know, I told her we were part of the search block and all that. And she said, uh, let me just tell you my story. She said, my 17-year-old son was out with some of his buddies doing what 17-year-olds do. I mean, I remember when I was 17 years old, I was trying to find you know, somebody to buy my beer and chase girls. And, and she said they were just out having some, some fun on their own. And two rival drug gangs showed up, got into an argument, and there was a gun battle. And her 17-year-old son was killed by a stray bullet. That story just happens over and over and over again during the Escobar days. You know, and, and here's this lady. She said, please tell your partner, and, and this is to you and your wife, thank you so much for what you did for our country to come down here and, and get rid of this scourge. That's what real Colombians are all about. And Javier and I, we traveled all the world. We've, on, we've been on every continent now except Africa and Antarctica. Uh, we're supposed to go to Africa in May, and it got canceled because of the virus. But everywhere we go, there are Colombians in the audience. And every time they come up and thank us for what we had to do with changing history in their country. So, you know, I, we kind of wear that as a badge of honor. It's, it's not what we went down there to do. But the fact that all these years later, Colombia still come to us and thank us for what we did to get rid of the Escobar and the Medellin cartel regime down there. You know, we wear it as a badge of honor now. As you should. I mean, and that's the difference. It's like when a lot of people nowadays look at these kind of shows because we we love like excitement and bullets and nut bangs and all that kind of stuff. They always make it out to be like you know the heroes fighting everybody and all this kind of stuff. But they kind of really because I mean I'm really into gangster stuff and into like you know these kind of like famous enforcement agencies and the FBI, CIA, all these kind of things. But you learn the truth about it, and it's very rarely what they show on the TV, even when they're based on a true story. But, I mean, what what did you think when they came to you and said that he'd been killed? You know, I mean, I know that the Narcos series had shown that you were there on the rooftop, but it was a Colombian sort of mission, and that uh, Connie had gone back to, like, Miami with the, with the kids, but that wasn't true and things like that. But at that point, what was going through your mind you know, was it the fact that, oh, right, that's that mission done, going on to the next one? Or 
like how you know did the book help you then come to terms with what had happened have you only just kind of putting that the whole escapade to rest because you then went on to your next mission and just carried on going after the next perpetrator well you know what and, and let me go first because steve was there and he can you know uh tell you that i i wasn't there i was gone i mean i i uh the ambassador ordered me to go to miami it's different from, from what the show uh, depicts. It's just basically an informant got a hold of the ambassador, that he only wanted to talk to me, that he knew where Pablo Escobar was. I tried to argue with our ambassador. I tried to tell him, sir, we are very close. And the ambassadors are like presidents. He says, if you don't go, I will kick you out of the country. So I ended up, <laughs> all right. And I, I, and I knew we were close to him anyway. So I got on a plane and... You know, the person that tells me that Pablo has been killed is the informant. He's on the phone. He puts the phone down and says, oh, yeah, they just killed Pablo Escobar. So anyway, I got on the phone. And you know what? Just before uh, Steve starts, I was elated. I was happy because now, you know, what? there's justice. Of all the innocent people, all the police officers, all the friends we had killed by Pablo Escobar, finally justice was served. I wish it would have been served earlier. That would have saved a lot of innocent people. But it was—it's something that you can't explain because it's—it's it's, you've been chasing for so for so long. In the in the chase, like we've mentioned, was uh, was personal. So, of course, I was very happy. I go there. We go the next day. We pick up uh, Steve. I go congratulate all the cops and uh, we come back and uh, Steve, go ahead, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and Ian, I'm glad you brought up about uh, people seeing things on TV and believing what they see because everything you see on television is not true, you know, and the Narcos series is a prime example. It's a dramatization, you know, and, and they want to make it exciting so people will come on board and watch, you know, because they make money off subscribership. But um, for me, Initially, when I'm standing in the colonel's office listening to the operation going down, you're starting to get excited. But, you know, we had come so close so many times before and missed Pablo. Uh, so you're, you're just a little hesitant to get too excited because you're going to think, oh, you know, you're thinking, oh, no, is this going to be another uh, dashed hopes that we finally got this guy? But when they came across and finally said, Viva Colombia, Pablo is dead. There was a lot of backslapping going on. I was standing in the colonel's office, Colonel Martinez's office, with his executive staff, um, shaking hands. Everybody was elated. Honestly, you felt like the pressure of the world had been lifted off your shoulders. But then, you know, I go to call my boss, and he said, listen, get out there and confirm that this really is Pablo. And then, you know, you're all excited, and you think, oh, yeah, you know what? That's true. It, it could be the wrong person. So I rode out, you know, the, like you said, Marco shows I was on the roof. I was not. I was back at the base. And I rode out to the scene after Pablo was dead with Colonel Martinez. So when we got there, you know, it turns out that I had the only camera that was working that day. And, and so all the photographs that were taken until the press showed up, I took the pictures. And so we get down there and uh, I finally get up on the roof where his body is. And, and of course, you look at it and it does look like him. It looks, uh, he was quite a bit heavier than, than what I'd seen in photographs before. That was the first time I'd ever seen Pablo Escobar is after he was already killed. So, uh, you know, they come in and they do a fingerprint analysis. And, and of course that came back positive, but the real telling fact for me that that was Pablo Escobar is when his mother and his sister showed up because his sister, the, the bodyguard, the lone Sicario that was with him that day, when he was killed, he fell off the roof onto the ground. 
well, I'm standing on the roof when the mother and the daughter show up and I'm watching them and, and the daughter, his, Pablo's sister becomes very irate with the police officers. I want to see if that really is my brother over there. You know, and so she kind of bullies her way over to where the Sicario is laying on the ground, Limon. And she looks at him and she starts berating the, the government officials there, the police officers. You guys, this is not Pablo Escobar. You're so incompetent. You've killed the wrong person. This is probably an innocent man. And she just goes on and on and on. And they let her go for several minutes. And when she finally calms down, they said, hey, go take a look up on the roof. So she, you know, I, I get out of the way by that time so she can't see me. But when I saw her see her brother on the roof, that was confirmation for me that that actually was Pablo Escobar. You know, we've heard all the conspiracy theories out there that uh, that wasn't Pablo Escobar. He's still running around with Elvis or Jimmy Hoffa or whoever, you know, the, all these other legends that are out there. <laughs> Uh, but we know for a fact it wasn't. That was Pablo Escobar. And you know what we also found out, and this is, a, is proof in the pudding as well, is we looked at the murder statistics prior to Pablo's death, and then a couple months after his death, we checked the murder statistics again in Medellin, Colombia, which in 92 and 93 was the murder capital of the entire world. The murder rate after Pablo was killed dropped by almost 80% simply because Pablo was gone. You know, if he was still alive, he'd go right back into business. It would have been just as dangerous as ever. So, I mean, quite honestly, we elation doesn't do it justice. You know, the, the next day Javier flew up, and, and after we met with everybody, I flew out with him and got back to Bogota that night. It was a Friday night. My wife and another agent's wife had planned out this party in the embassy. We I don't know, we started probably... We were drinking pizza, uh, drinking beer and eating pizzas in the embassy. And it was probably about 6.30, 7 o'clock. We got home. <laughs> we finally left the embassy and started hitting the bars. We got home at daylight on Saturday morning. It was an all-nighter for us. But the feeling was just, it's really hard to describe. You just felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off your shoulders. But then, it's like you also said, Ian, once we, you know, we had a lot of loose ends to tie up, working with Columbia National Police and, and just getting questions answered and all that. But when the case was over, we simply moved on to the next case because that's what our job was. So what kind of thing? Is it just a case of just replacing the, going after the next cartel that comes in? You know, what kind of reaction did you see in the Colombian people? Because they must have been elated that, you know, you'd help them, their police take back, the, you know, their country. Right, right. The Colombians were wow, were were very happy. They were elated. They were glad because they knew that the car bombing, the indiscriminate killings, uh, would stop. And re remember, Escobar killed a lot of innocent people just for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. So Colombia was happy. Now the dr drug uh, industry industry stopped for about what? Two weeks, then it started all <laughs> over again. So we we forgot about the Cali cartel. We did forget. We just weren't concentrating on them. Cali cartel was learning from Pablo Escobar. They were uh, Cali cartel was business. They were organized. Pablo was wild, wild west. So while Pablo was, we were going after Pablo. The Cali cartel was sitting. Uh, in uh in isolation they were doing their dope more sophisticated they were getting stronger and stronger until we went after them then we took them down then the north valley cartel started so you know long story short as soon as you take down one cartel there's another one to take it over 
it's, that's the thing, isn't it? There's always going to be the attraction to easy money. There's always going to be those bullies that think that they can control it, they can be the boss. And there's unfortunately, until we kind of fix society and you know, like better education, better pay for like jobs and stuff, there's always going to be people who look for that shortcut. And it, it's I don't know how you deal with that. You know how how do you change the youths? I mean, do you think it's better drug education? I mean, I know your opinions on legislation and things like that, but do you kind of think there needs to be more education given to young people about the dangers of drugs, but also where it comes from and the damage it does to the society and the people who are involved in it? Absolutely. And Javier and I are big proponents of this, and, and we love it when people ask this question at our shows. Um, and this, this, we don't have a definitive answer. You know, there's... there's um, if we did, you know what? We'd be multimillionaires if we had the answer to all the world's drug problems, wouldn't we? But we are big proponents of education at the earliest possible age. You know, I've, I have five granddaughters now. Um, if it, you know what? If it takes scaring the crap out of them in first or second grade to to, to indoctrinate them that how bad drugs are, how the violence that goes along with it, I'm okay with that. You know, I think that, that we should educate our children at the earliest possible age. We had a we have a program here in the United States called the DARE program that would go into the elementary schools and the middle schools and, and teach the kids the dangers of, of narcotics. And, you know, one of the political administrations here in the United States cut it several years ago, cut the funding. Uh, it's now being funded through private uh, monies. I'm not sure where they come from, but at least it's getting back out in the schools. But Hunter and I, we've been to a lot of shows where people would come up to us and like, yeah, I remember in the D.A.R.E. program when I was school, that was such a good program. You know, we got to know the police officer. Plus, you know, we, we learned about the dangers of narcotics and the violence associated with it and all that. But also on top of that, um, you know, and this is not to take away from the men and women of law enforcement out there, the brave men and women who are willing to put uniforms on to protect us. So please don't take this out of context. But we as a world cannot arrest our way out of the drug problem. We cannot put all these people in jail and expect the problem to go away because there's so many other evil people out there waiting to take their place. So one of the programs that DEA has come up with here in the United States, and you know we've been retired for a while now, but I'm real proud of what they're doing. It's not fair to go into our police and say, go fix this problem, or our legislators, or any single group and expect them to make the drug problem go away. You know, we need to take the community approach is our opinion. In addition to education, we need to bring our law enforcement together with our legislators, together with our professional businessmen, our housewives, our faith-based communities, the doctors, the uh, pharmacists from the pharmaceutical companies. We need to bring the whole community together to attack this problem and then view it as a community problem. Not, hey, I don't have any problems in my family. It's not my issue. It's everybody's issue because it's having a direct negative impact on every facet of our society. Um, it's just ridiculous. So that's is that the final answer? I don't know. I, I wish I did have the answer. We, we discuss this all the time, and, and that's the best things that we've come up with so far. So, you know, I challenge your listeners out there. Think about this and, and don't hesitate to get involved if there's something you can do to Help your community. Jump in there and do do your part. Do the most you can to, to help out your fellow citizens there. Because that's the thing, isn't it? Is everybody assumes the government's going to deal with it or the police are going to deal with it, and it's all about educating like your own kid or your nephew or just yourself about the the dangers of drugs. 
It is. And, and you know what? Let me just say this also, because um, I know, you know, you're in the UK and, and a lot of our UK fans will be listening to this. And uh, I got to tell you, we love coming over there. <laughs> you guys are a hoot to hang out with. It's a lot of fun every time we come over. But, uh, you know, we're not saying this as the, uh, the ugly Americans telling you what should be done in your country. Here in the United States, we have the dubious reputation of having the highest demand for illegal narcotics in the world. That's not a reputation we're proud of. So, you know, when we throw these ideas out there, we're talking about our own country. And if you can implement them in your countries as well and it works, God bless you. I think that's fantastic. Now, something I've often wondered is you never got a chance to sort of meet Pablo face to face, you know, but but you eliminated his organization, you've changed so many people's lives, you've helped so many people out of like such a dangerous time. But if you had had a chance to meet him, is it a question that you've always wanted to to know or were you just so kind of focused on getting rid of him and eliminating the danger that he was to the Colombian society? Would you have wanted to ask him something or like his motives even? Or do you just assume I'll go, that they're plain yeah, evil? I'll go first on it. And it's it's not a question. It's just more of a comment. Why the innocent people? What did they have to do in in this? Why the, the women, the children being on that uh, commercial airline, the people at a building that he blew up? It was just, why did you get all this innocent people involved. I mean, I know the answer, why, but it's just, that to me has always, uh, hey, if you're a drug trafficker, deal with uh, deal with your own, but, you know, innocent people, you know, wh- why did you have to get them involved? Mm, definitely. And for me, I, you know, there's, I have nothing to say that, man, if he were still alive, other than goodbye, but you know, on top of him being the world's biggest cocaine manufacturer and distributor, um, if you go back and check the records, he married his wife when she was 13 years old. Well, in your country, in our country, we call that a pedophile. You know, and she came out with her book last year stating that she actually had an abortion when she was 12 years old. Or when she, she had an abortion when she was 13 because he got her pregnant when she was 12 years old, and he's in his mid-20s. You know, there's... I. If he were still alive, I, there is absolutely nothing I'd have to say to that guy. The relationship between you two has been something that I, I noticed really, you know, it's really strong. It's super developed. What, you know, you've now, even after retirement, you're still great friends. What has this taught you about teamwork, working together, friendship? You know, you've toured the world. You've given your talks. You've discussed everything that's happened between you. What has it taught you about friendship? Well, you know what, and, uh, the, the, the cooperation, you, you need, uh, uh, Steve and I, and, and we're complete opposites, you know, there's a lot of differences uh, between us, but that never made a difference. It, it, it worked, and uh, we trusted each other, we knew what uh, we were doing, and even in our uh, speaking business, our presentations, I mean, we have it down where... It's yeah, we, we know what one's going to say the other one. And, uh, but it's, it's, you, you need that, uh, that trust that you have with uh, one another. And, uh, I always know that, you know what, there's going to be that person there. If something goes wrong. You can always, there's that, uh, 
that backup, uh, basically. So it's something that, you know, and, and I think it's, and Steve will explain it back, you know, he explains it best, uh, are uh, what happened in the show. So you would take the, the show aspect. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, uh, you know, they, they added a lot of like in the show, they show hungry and I shoving each other and cussing each other out and pushing and, you know, almost getting into a fist fight. We've never even had a disagreement. <laughs> it's, you know, it's funny how it's portrayed. And even when we were working the case back in Columbia, other agents in our office, you know, we were friends with them and um, really close friends down there. And, and they would even come to us and say, you two guys are unbelievable, man. You guys are complete opposites, but you've got the best partnership we've ever seen. And, and these are experienced law enforcement officers, you know. And it's, uh, Javier's right, we're, we're pretty much different from each other. Um, but, you know, I think my weaknesses are his strengths and vice versa. So it's just worked out for us. Um, once we left Columbia, we kind of lost contact with each other. We'd see each other maybe once every year or every other year at conferences and things like that. And the funny thing is about law enforcement, my wife has always mentioned this. I can go, I can go years without seeing a brother police officer or sister police officer. And I can see him tomorrow and, and we pick right up where we left off. And it's like, you know, we've been friends every day. We've been talking to every day. And she's like, how in the world do you guys do that? <laughs> but it's just part of that law enforcement culture where it's, you know, it, it's kind of cliche to say this, but it is a, a family type atmosphere. You know, it's, uh, when you go through multiple life and death situations with somebody and you survive, I mean, you, you just develop a, a relationship that's closer than brotherhood and sisterhood. It's, it's kind of hard to explain unless you've experienced it. And it's not just law enforcement. Military uh, is the same way. Any occupation is very high risk. Firemen, first responders, uh, even electricians, electricians working out there on those high power lines. You know, it's, it's pretty much the same for everybody. Because that's true friendship, isn't it? Is when you can just immediately pick up where you, you know, if you haven't spoken to somebody for months, but you, you can t- pick it up like you you were speaking to them yesterday. You know, it's like, and it's like nothing's changed at all. It's kind of, it does show true friendship, and there's that brotherhood of the police. And it's fantastic to see the relationship you guys have. But were there, was there anything that annoyed you about the narco series that you thought didn't re- represent you truly? I mean, was Javier really <laughs> that much of a dating megastar, do you think? Well, yeah, I was going to ask him for some tips. That's the uh, one part of Narcos is true. He wasn't right. into what. Yeah. You know what? I, I, I tell people, if you like the, the, the sex that I was involved with, then yes, it is true. <laughs> yep. <laughs> There was, you know, one of the things that bothers both of us yeah. is it, it shows us in the scene, in the movie, in the series, it shows that, you know, before they do anything, they light a cigarette, they drink a beer and they cuss, you know, they drop the F-bomb. Neither one of us even smoked and we certainly didn't drink like they did in the embassy. Because <laughs> right, right. that's the thing, you look at the both of you and you think, these are like James Bond, like wannabes, you're knocking back the whiskeys and I think you must have been on about like 400 cigarettes a day. And right, I was right. like... Oh. And the other one I think you mentioned earlier was the affiliation with Los Pepes. We were not corrupt. We were not passing information or helping them out. We knew them. But we didn't know the head Don Berna, uh, and you know we explained in the book where he was an informant for the government of Colombia. And uh, after we, you know, like I said, he was always at the base. But we did not know he was the head of Los Pepes until about after two years. We find out that he was the real leader of Los Pepes, and uh, kind of interesting. So people will know that uh, he turned out to be a drug trafficker. 
And afterwards, uh, the United States extradited him, and he's serving 30 years uh, in prison in the United States. I, I think he's about to get out uh, either four or five more years. But uh, again, we, we were not, let's say, complicit with Los Pepes. Because that's the thing, you know, it's like, again, it's that kind of, they just insinuate that, and it's that kind yeah. of thing of like, people then believe that because it's on TV. So people immediately right. assume, rather than do their own research and find stuff, and it must be so frustrating that, that people can kind of assume that about you. And because it's Hollywood, you know, it's because it's on Netflix and people go, oh, yeah, that must be true. It's this right. whole fake news thing. I mean, I don't, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump in any way, but it's the lack of critical thinking or analysis that so many people have about their it's, own choices. You know, and that's true, Ian. And, and I, you know, we just said a while ago, we love coming to the UK, you know, whether it's England, Scotland, Ireland. We haven't been to Wales, but we hope to go there someday also. But um, we really do enjoy coming over there. But I got to be honest with you, Europe, um, it seems like everybody believes everything they saw in the narco series, <laughs> you know, especially when it comes to the Q and A, cause they're saying, well, when, when this happened, you know, how did you handle that? Well, that didn't really happen. That was Hollywood. You know, well, what about what'd you do when you came home and they hung the cat, hung your cat on your front door? That didn't happen. That's Hollywood. Well, Steve, how did you handle it when you were kidnapped? I was never kidnapped. That was Hollywood. <laughs> it's it's just funny that it seems like whether it's uh, you know not just the UK, but all we did we've done a Northern European tour through the Scandinavian Scandinavian countries, and it was the same way there. It's like the people believe what they saw on Narcos. They believe every bit of it was true. But it made for an interesting series, and it made for people watching. And so I guess yeah. in a way, hey, we're. Uh, we're getting the fruits out of it. Yep. Well, now is a perfect time. I mean, I know we're way over a limit. I'd love to do a second one where we really get into the nitty gritty. But I mean, I think you're both heroes for what you did. It's amazing to see the careers you had. I turned up to your book tour when it was in Glasgow, Scotland, and it was so illuminating. It was so good to see the truth of it, not just what happened but with the Hollywood shine, but to actually see what you guys did. And Hello. the book is amazing because you yeah. go into the true details you go into what didn't work the negative aspects the mistakes you've made you admit your own failings and it's such it's so refreshing to see it from that point so now's a perfect time to sell the book you know how can we get it how can we find it but why should people buy it do you think well our book uh, manhunters how we took down pablo escobar it tells the truth it's just like our shows. That's what it's all about. That's the reason we do them is we want the world to know the truth. And in our book, Manhunters, you know, it goes in a little more detail about how we grew up, uh, some of the other cases we worked on. It's not all just about Pablo Escobar, but it does culminate with the true story about what really happened there. Um, in the UK, our publisher there is Headline Publishers. So you can... Uh, Unfortunately, here in the United States, we're not allowed to sell the book outside the United States because of customs and excise taxes and agreements. And, you know, headline publishers bought the right to publish our book in the UK. So just go to their website or give them a call. Uh, you can order it there. Um, and I promise you, you will, you will read the true story about what really happened. We're not Superman. We're just a couple of ordinary guys. And the book is the real, the actual history of the search of Pablo Escobar, witnessed, participated by Steve and I, who were actually there. 
I love it. I mean, and what do you want people to take from this interview? If it's like a, if there's one sort of go home message to them, what would it be? As a, it can be about drugs, it can be about the Escobar, it can be friendship. What, what would you want them to be as a central theme or message to take from this? Well, for me, um, please don't believe everything somebody else tells you, whether it's the media, especially the media. Do your own research. Find out what really happened, and then you make the conclusions. Don't let the media tell you what's right and what's wrong and how you should believe. You know, we're seeing that so much, uh, especially here in the United States, and especially right now. What's going on here is horrible. You know, the there's, there's a saying that's going around here that I, I think Jaime and I both agree with 100%. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. And we agree with that wholeheartedly. So mistakes are made here. But again, you research whatever the issue is and you make your own determination. Please don't let other people tell you what to think. You got a brain, use it. Make up your own decisions. And always remember, and I think we stress it in our show, in the book, the real heroes were the Colombian National Police. They took their country back and we try to highlights some of the heroes in the book who deserve all the credit. So, uh, and please, we always visit Colombia. It's a safe country. It's a beautiful country. Uh, great people. So we encourage to visit. Well, for anybody listening who wants to get the book, um, could you just go give your website? Could you give your social media handles? Because you you know you're always doing tours. You've got some great content there. So how can people find you? Yeah, just go on the, our website is www.deanarcos.com. Uh, we have a calendar on there that shows when and where we'll be in the world. Uh, of course, right now it's blank because of the virus that's going around, but. <laughs> We're hoping that'll go away soon and we'll get back on the road. We're, we're actually hoping to get back for our third UK tour. I don't think it'll happen in 2020, but maybe in 2021. Um, because when we say we love coming there, we're not kidding. That's My wife came over with us one time and Javier's wife, and we just had a blast when we were over there. But also on our website, uh, there's videos. There's uh, a lot of photographs from when we're on the road. There's just a lot of different things on there. Unfortunately, you cannot order the book outside of the United States. Uh, from our website, but you know, if you just go to Headline Publishers, you're good. And if you're on social media, we're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DEA Narcos. We appreciate it if you check us out and follow us there. Um, we're also on YouTube and Vimeo and LinkedIn under DEA Narcos. Uh, so just, you know, three years ago, I couldn't tell you what any of that meant, but now we're all over social media. So <laughs> come and check us out and like us. <laughs> And uh, for me, I can't wait to uh, do another European tour, so I'm ready. Well, that's it for another week, and thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.